It's a, uh, it's a big day in the Friedman household because it's Halloween. And it means it's like basically the day that my kids prepare every other day of the year for. Um, like I don't have Jude and Avery at home most days. Most of the days it's Elsa, Captain America, Woody, right? If you've got young kids, you kind of know like a Halloween costume gets used 365 days a year type of deal. Um, and it's kind of interesting because as a, as a kid, for me, I wore the same Halloween costume four years in a row. For four straight years, I was the Green Power Ranger. Just, I don't know why, but like for four straight years, and my mom kind of caught on, and I think the last year she just saved it from the year before, and so I went around as the Green Power Ranger wearing capris, because everything was just a little bit too short. So who's out there going trick-or-treating tonight? You guys got plans? It's a great, some of you, it's a, it's a great opportunity if you're a dad, because you get the dad tax, which means before your kids get candy, you get to take all the good stuff out, and then you leave them with like the black licorice and the dots, you know? It's a great, it's a great benefit benefit perk of being a father. Now, even though my kids dress up uh, every single day, um, they, they don't really actually believe that they are the superhero or the princess they dress up and claim to be. Um, but it's kind of interesting that, that even as adults, some of us, we, we still like that idea of dressing up and going to parties. But, but don't we kind of fake things kind of through life as well from time to time? You know, there's this recent social media trend going on about women outing their husbands um, about how they use them to get out of things, where like the, the wife will say, hey, if my husband ever tells you like, hey, I need to check with my wife first, that's code for he doesn't want to hang out with you. Or, or if it's something like, um, like you invite him to hang out and he says something to the extent of, I don't know, I think the wife wants to have a play date, that's code for, I don't know how to tell you no, so I'm going to blame it on her instead, right? Now, I'm not saying I've ever been there before, but I've been there before and I've done that. You know, it's interesting, even last week, um, some of you guys noticed that our communion was different. And I had one person literally come up to me and say, why do we have the fake stuff this week? And I said, what do you mean the fake stuff? They said, well, no, now we've got the communion where it's like that styrofoam disc instead of the little chiclet of bread. Why do we have the fake stuff? I said, because there's a communion shortage. There's like literally a shortage of everything in this world right now, including communion. We fake a lot of things throughout life. It's somewhat in our human nature. And even to some degree, let's be honest, don't we fake our faith in Jesus from time to time as well? The good news of, of this is that you're probably not alone. If you find yourself ever thinking, man, I just really been kind of going through the motions, faking my, my Christian walk, just know, man, I am right there with you. Now, the bad news in that, though, is that Jesus doesn't look fondly upon that. Jesus never just says, hey, that's cool, just go ahead and, and kind of get better at faking it. Instead, he's very direct. He wants lives that are fully committed to him, not just going through the motions. But the good news amidst that bad news is that Jesus in his love is always with us and his grace is through it all. This is what Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 27, or in Matthew 7, starting in verse 24. Today we kick off a teaching series through the book of James, so let's start in Matthew chapter 7 instead. He says this, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, his most influential time of teaching, Jesus offers these words. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man. Everyone say wise. 
Well, that's good. Mike, I like it. Wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it's had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man. Everyone say foolish. It's like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. With a great crash. Then Jesus had finished saying these things. The crowds were amazed at his teachings. <gasps> because he taught with one who had authority. Not just as their teachers of the law. In this crowd there would have been a man by the name of James. And we come to find out that James eventually gives his life to follow Jesus. But James had a peculiar trait about himself. Is that he was related to Jesus. He was the half-brother of Jesus. You see, they had the same mother, not the same father. And James, though, began to believe and hearing and starting to see, man, my brother is who he claimed to be. The savior of the world, the one who came to redeem us of our sins. And a decade later, James is, is, is given the task to be a leader in the church and to write to a group of Christians. And so he decides to write this letter that he names... James. But I think he's reflecting on those final words of Jesus from that sermon. Because he's writing to a group of Christians saying, those of us who have faced that trial or that temptation, the, 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 the tractor beam to kind of fake our way through life and faith, he's saying, this is for you. And that letter to those Christians some 2,000 years ago is very applicable to us today. It's the same tension that I think you and I, if we're honest, we can kind of believe that we find ourselves, and it's this, is that sometimes we can fake the Christian life. Can't we, from time to time, don't we pretend to say the right things, do the right things, showing up when it matters? You ever found yourself giving those caged Christian answers? Someone's like, oh man, what, what man, life's just going good. Yeah, I'm just blessed. Someone's going through something and you offer up the phrase, well, I'll pray for you. And do you actually go back and pray for them? Sometimes we even go far to say, man, I have just been convicted of this, but we don't actually change our hearts or our ways. Have you ever noticed that the longer you live out the Christian life, the temptation and the ability to fake it is all that much more easy? See, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, I think we would all admit that we have faked our faith at some point or another. And the answer to a fake faith isn't to get better at faking it. At the same time, too, the answer isn't just to toss it out the window and say, let me just go find something else. Rather, the answer is to know the word of God and to put it into practice. And so as we start off this teaching series through the book of James, I believe we're going to see this idea kind of drawn out through its chapters. And so if you're with us this morning and, and you're not a Christian, you're here kind of maybe exploring faith, exploring church, exploring God, this series might actually be somewhat of encouragement to you. Because perhaps you've done this thing through life where you've looked at your life and you've kind of compared it to the life of a Christian, you know, and you kind of say, you know, it's not all that different. There's not a whole lot of difference between maybe how we think, how we act, how we treat people. And in some ways, the book of James is going to offer a, 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 a consoling nature that, oh, those who claim to follow Jesus ought to live a different life. 
Now, you might be here and you might be a new Christian. You might be saying, yo, this whole faith in Jesus thing, I'm so glad that I've been saved by his grace, but I'm kind of new. Well, I want to remind you that following Jesus isn't a one-time act. It's not a decision that you made one time and that's it, and you go about your life. Rather, that being a Christian, being a disciple is a lifelong continuation. And hopefully, this will be an encouragement to you as you take those next steps. But to those of us who maybe could say, I hate to admit it, but I've been complacent here and there. I hate to admit it, but, but that faking, yeah, that's been me a little bit. I remember that season a few years ago. I kind of feel like I'm in that season right now. That if we feel convicted through this series, may we actually act upon it, knowing that the grace of Jesus is alive and active. That the Christian faith isn't one of a transaction, but it's of a transformation. You see, here's what I believe the book of James is all going to be about. Why faith? What do I do with it? How do I know if my faith is real and working? I believe we could sum up the book of James this way. Is that faith is only as legitimate as it is expressed. It reminds me of the great words from the theologian Dallas Willard when he says, faith isn't opposed to works, but it is opposed to earning. And James, throughout its five chapters, is going to address kind of two groups of people. On one end, he's going to address the foolish person, the person who's living life their way. And you could define a foolish person like this. It's someone who says, well, I'm living life in God's world my way. I listen to my heart. I listen to what tickles my ears. I do things my way. But a wise person, as James is going to explain, is different. Similar, but different. A wise person is living in God's world God's way. See, whether you're a wise person or a foolish person, we live the same life. We live in the same world. We experience a lot of the same things. But the differentiation is what do you do when things you disagree with happen? What do you do when the trials come at you in life? What do you do when the temptation just seems to mount? Do you choose to live a foolish life or a wise life? You know, we uh, initially wanted to call this series, I wanted to call it this series, Spiritual Wedgies. Because it's kind of like uncomfortable, right, to be convicted. It's a little uncomfortable, like to hear things where they're a little challenging, they're calling you out, right? And I had all these like one-liners or all these blurbs or series titles about, you know, we just got to pick at things that kind of get in our way. But we didn't go that far because we didn't feel like that was appropriate for church, said the creative arts guy. So anyways, welcome to the book of James. Week one. You can follow along with me if you have your Bible. Um, I know Aaron told it to put, put it down on the floor in front of you. So let the Spirit lead you and guide you if you want to pick it up and follow along with us this morning. You can always grab uh, sermon notes on your way in to where you pick up communion. But in James chapter 1, starting in verse 1, this is how it begins. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. <laughs> I just love that. Greetings. Period. Not an exclamation mark. He's just like, sup. Let's move on, right? And so we learn two things here about the, the, the letter, the book of James. Sometimes it's referred to as an, uh, an epistle. A New Testament letter is an epistle. Number one is, who is James? Think about this. If there was anyone who wouldn't want to believe in Jesus as Lord, 
If there was anyone who didn't want to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the sovereign uh, part of the triune God, wouldn't it have been his half-brother? Wouldn't it have been the guy who his entire life had to hear things like, well, Jesus never did that. (laughs) Come on, James, if you could only be more like your brother Jesus. Like if there's anyone who was just like, man, I'm sick and tired of hearing about how good and perfect and holy my brother is. If there was anyone who wouldn't want to believe that that was both the son of man and the son of God, wouldn't it have been this guy? And yet, how does he refer to himself? He doesn't say, hey, I'm James, the half-brother of Jesus. He was kind of a big deal, so that makes me a half-big deal. He says, no, no, no. I am James, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He began to believe and internalize and realize who his life belonged to. Jesus was no longer his brother, but Jesus was also his Lord and Savior. James had the nicknames of James the Just because of his pious way of life and old camel knees because of his immense time in prayer. And James will go on to reference his brother's teaching nearly 50 to 60 times in five short chapters. Now he's writing though, he says, to the 12 tribes scattered. Some translations you might say the diaspora, the scattered Christians. And what was happening is these Christians were kind of kicked out of their land. Some of it was the promised land that God had given to them, but they made some poor choices and now they were living under someone else's rule. And there were people outside of their church and people inside of their church who now owned this land. But because of their faith, they were experiencing persecution. They had higher taxes and lower pay. And as a result... They were facing some pretty hard things. Natural needs in life weren't being met. But what it caused within them was to begin to talk bad or backbite the others in their church. There was a physical hardship that was leading to a spiritual sickness. And so James is in some ways writing to both crowds. Be a Christian. Live out that faith and that grace you've been given to both of you. Do better. Look at the evidence of your life and see how you don't just fake it or smile or nod or give the what's up when you see them at church, but then talk differently about them when they're gone. Live out that faith. In verse two, this is how James begins. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I'm a firm believer that that very first verse after the greeting is the hardest verse in all of scripture, wouldn't you? Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. I don't think that's something that we say, man, life's really difficult. I'm, I'm experiencing some, some counterintuitive things. I'm not really sure what to do here. That's amazing. <laughs> Can I have another one, please? Like it's super difficult, but it's speaking to that something beneath the surface that as life is hard in this life, there is something that surpasses and oversees it that allows us to still find joy. And he says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. 
And there are three different types of trials we see in the book of James. Number one, it's external persecution. People being demeaned, treated less than simply because of their faith. A lot of us, we don't really know what that's like here in the 21st century of America. James is also going to address, though, personal illness or sickness. That's definitely a trial. And you might be here today facing that trial in your life. I don't know why I got this cancer. Perhaps you've been watching a loved one battle a recent sickness and they can't seem to get to the other side. Maybe there's someone you care deeply about and you don't know why they're struggling with this sickness or this illness and you've tried everything yet it still keeps on happening. No matter how hard you pray, no matter how much you care, it doesn't seem to get any better. James is gonna say that's a trial. And the third one is internal bittering, meaning backbiting between other people in the family of God. And what James is going to say is that even though trials can produce joy within us, he's never going to say, well, your heart should be, well, thank you, Lord, may I have another. But rather, how do you seek joy amidst it all? You see, a trial here, it's kind of a reference of one of two things. In one way, it's the way in which you train in order to to get ready for a marathon or, or an athletic feat. And in the other way, it's the way in which they would purify gold of all of its toxins to turn it into jewelry. Basically, it was what needed to be done in order to uh, arrive at a better outcome in life. Now, in eighth grade, uh, my school offered this thing called interperiod, meaning the first semester of, uh, or the, the first two weeks of the spring semester, so in January, you would actually go to school for half a day, and then the other half of the day after lunch, you would get to pick an elective class for two weeks. And in eighth grade, what you were allowed to do was participate in TAC, T-A-C. It stood for the athlete's course, or just training and conditioning. And so all the eighth grade boys, of course, we sign up, we sign up for TAC, and we walk in, and in our weight room is Coach Rossetta. He's this, got this slick back hair, he's this Italian guy who's just jacked in his 50s, who just probably looked like he used to chain smoke in one day, like, I don't know, but he was just like super intimidating dude. And the first day was a litmus test of your strength, and the only thing he said, all right, kids, we're going to see how many pull-ups you can do. And so you get up and, you know, all 5, 10, 90-pound Eric gets like three. And I'm like, man, I'm doing pretty good because some of my friends can't even get one. And then he says, okay, now grab a partner. And you grab a partner. He said, now, partner, stand behind your, your friend. And they're going to put their feet against your chest so that you can use them as leverage. And do as many pull-ups as you can. And so you just keep cranking them out, right? You're cranking them. And then he says, as soon as your partner starts to slow down, you start to lift them up. And you help them. And as soon as they can't go anymore, you just continue to lift them up. It's a team here. And we're like, okay. And so we're here as a bunch of eighth graders who've never been in the weight room before. We're doing all these pull-ups. Well, the next day, it was very clear which kids were intact because we all walked around school like this. Our arms were literally stuck because our biceps were so tight. And we exchanged time at lunch. It was like, yeah, just stretch out my arm. Ooh, yeah, that feels good. And then you let go, and it was just like, (laughs) and that's what the word trial is about. You put yourself through some pain in order to be prepared to be stronger later. And what James is going to offer up is that trials are here to help you triumph, not to tank you. However, 
You need to focus on who is in control, not what is happening in front of you. Because the quickest way to let a trial tank you is to focus on what is before you, not ultimately who is in charge. And I believe the greatest trial that we face as Christians today is simply this, is do I trust God's way for blank? Do I trust God's way for blank? Could be a trial of the bank account. It could be the trial of a relationship. It could be a trial of the heart, a a trial of the mind. But the greatest trial I believe we will face is do I trust God's way for blank? Do I trust that when God says sex is best in the confines of marriage, do I believe that or not? When God says, I believe it is better to give than to receive, do I trust God's way or not? When God says it is better to forgive 70 times, seven times than to harbor bitterness in our heart, do I trust God's way or not? James continues then to kind of pull on this idea of how trials can potentially make us stronger. In verse five, he continues saying, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously without finding faults and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must, not, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is, well, like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. You ever give advice to someone and you just watch them do the exact opposite? You're like, parenting 101 happens all the time. Like that's super hard, right? Someone comes to you, they're in pain or, or they've got a decision. And you say, well, this is what I would do. Or better yet, this is what I did do. Don't make that mistake. And you just watch them go do it again, right? In preparation for this message, I read an article about advice that sounds good, but no one should probably ever take it. And one of them was super good. It was, this, uh, it was given to a 16-year-old girl who was just learning to drive, but she was afraid of all of the cars on the highway, to which her father wrote in and said, well, this is the advice I gave to her then. Well, if you brake really hard and a lot and weave in and out of traffic, all the other cars will avoid you. (laughs) To hear advice, but to not follow it, James says is to be called double-minded. But you notice, James, he said, if you want to understand how trials can help you triumph instead of tank you, he says, find wisdom. The proverb tells us what wisdom is in chapter one, chapter three. It says, wisdom begins with the fear of God. Living life God's way in God's world, hiding his command, his truth in your hearts. A double-minded person is one who seeks God's answers, but then does the opposite. It's somewhat of a faithless approach to life, let alone faith in God. And here's something that's a warning to each and every one of us. It's that God will let you live that way. God will let us live a double-minded life. Because he is a God of love, he knows that the best way for you to follow him is to give over your heart to listen. That if you seek his wisdom and you choose to do the opposite, God will say, that is your choice. You will reap what you sow. But if you come to me in my love, if you come to me in my grace, which is always free and given to you, I have a much better way of life. But do you trust my way 
over your way. It's like being tossed around like a boat in the waves and in the wind, James says. There is no shortage of thoughts, desires, or wants that your heart has. That your sinful flesh will continually tempt you to follow, to listen to your heart other than anything than God himself. And in our world today, it's very easy to find sources or people or recommendations for that desire to be filled. You're in a relationship with someone and you feel that temptation, that trial to have sex before you're married. You can listen to anyone. Well, sex is just sex. You need to make sure that you're compatible first. You wouldn't test drive a car before, unless you bought it. Money, well, that's where you find real value in life, isn't it? You just watch that bank account rise and that's when you know that you've arrived. Value, what's your title? What's your position? How many homes you got? How much vacation time have you accrued? Humility, no, that's for the weak. Those people get stepped on. Integrity is fine, but if you can get rid of some of it to get ahead, then it's probably worth it. There's no shortage of ways to find advice that your heart and your sinful desires. But James's truth to us is avoid making yourself spiritually seasick. Avoid sitting on a boat being tossed back and forth. Now, I don't know if you've ever been seasick before. I spent an entire summer on a commercial fishing boat in Alaska, and for the first nine days, I was seasick. The, the Cheez-Its, trust me, they weren't staying down. And being seasick is like, you know, like, you know when you eat something bad and you just have, I just need to go kind of, you know, blow some chunks and then, and then I'm just going to feel better, right? You know that feeling and then you kind of feel better? That's like being seasick, but it never goes away. You just constantly feel like, oh, this is miserable. And you're laying on the ground and everything's just spinning because you're bouncing back and forth. And James says, don't make yourself spiritually seasick. You can't claim to be exclusive with God in his ways, yet continue to flirt with the world. See, the life of a Christian, the life of a disciple, is not one in which you say, well, God, I will listen to your truths about church and faith, but I will listen to my heart about sex and relationships, and I'll listen to the world when it comes to finances and values. That is to make yourself spiritually seasick because they're always going to be conflicting with one another. Don't make yourself spiritually seasick. James takes it a step further, though, about some of these trials, and he switches from trials to temptations, and they're a little bit different. Picking up at verse 12, he says this. He said, so blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, Having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, it's a different word here. No one should say, God is tempting me. I don't know why they say it like that, but I guess they do. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their evil desires and enticed. Therefore, they're then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. The difference between trials and temptation, trials is an outward in. It's a word that can make you stronger if you persevere within it. 
Temptation, if you picked up on it, comes from the inside out. It's seeking to lure you away like a fisherman or a hunter, leaving breadcrumbs or putting that bait on a hook to pull you in, not to be your friend, not to pat you on the head and say, there, there, little deer. Aren't you a cute little fishy fish? But to take your life. You see, in the short run, Satan seems sincere, doesn't he? When you give in to those temptations, it, it feels good for at least a moment or a season. The bottle, it'll bring distraction for a time. The drug will give you that buzz. There will be pleasure in that sex. The frenzy that comes with the power or the influence. But the one thing that Satan never reveals is the price tag. See, I believe that temptation's greatest hook is the lie that there is no ROI when chasing our temptations. If I can just feed this, then I don't have to worry about the consequences or what it's actually going to cost me. But if you feed it, it will grow, whether temptation or wisdom. James says there is a growth of temptation. It is conceived, it is born, it grows up, but it eventually leads you to death. What you feed grows. Uh, My family this past year, uh, we decided to raise chickens. I know, some of you are like, okay, you're one of those. Uh, my, my, my wife's school, they kind of do that thing for kindergartners where they, they incubate the eggs and they hatch and they never know what to do with the cute little chicks. So my wife says, we'll take them. And so she brings these five little chicks home and we start to feed them. And of course they get names like Sky, Chase, Mare Humdinger. You get a kind of picture of what my kids watch. And then of course there's Baby Shark. Why? I don't know, but that's just the one there. And it's cute. There are these cute little chicks and they sit in your hand and they make little quick, 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 quick noises. And you can keep them in a tub and they kind of walk around and you feed them. And then they get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then finally... Two of them grow up not to be cute little chickens, but roosters. And roosters are mean. They're like miniature velociraptors. They run around, and you're just like, oh my goodness. The only reason they grew up is because we fed them. And the same thing is with temptation. If you feed it, it will grow. I've got a close friend who's been in AA for almost 30 years and gave me this, just one of their mottos that they say is that one is too many and a thousand will never be enough. If you feed it, it will grow. But the important part there is that God can never tempt you. Because God is good, because God is holy, there is no moral depravity in him and therefore no desire to pull on your moral depravity. Certainly God may put you through a trial, or perhaps not remove a trial from you. But temptation is from your heart, your sinful desires, not your God. It is a falsehood of the Christian life that as soon as I become a Christian, my life's gonna be perfect, right? I'm never gonna experience pain or trial or temptation or suffering or pain or hardship. Look at the New Testament. Jesus' closest disciples, 11 of them, were murdered because of their faith, and the only one who didn't was exiled on an island all by himself to die. Jesus himself was in the garden, sweating blood the night before his crucifixion, 
And his words were, God, if this is your will, let it be done. And when we face trials, we kind of freak out sometimes. God, are you aware? Are you alive? Are you up there? You see what's happening? And he's not like, wait, what's happening? Oh, I didn't know you were experiencing that. My bad, let me step in. Instead, he's saying, I know. My son went through that. My son experienced that and he can relate to you. Do you trust me? Do you trust my way? Do you trust me? Might be hard to let that go, but do you trust me? See, I believe it's human nature to wave the white flag of surrender when the temptation comes. It's better to give up. It's better to try something else. But James is suggesting we wave the blood-stained robe of Christ instead. His grace, his love, his power in you. This is how this section ends in verse 16. He says, so don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be called a kind of first fruits of all he created. The word first fruits there, it's a harvesting term. It refers to the first 10%. And if that first 10% was good, it was usually the best, the purest, and the sign of a bountiful harvest. It connects all the way back to verse two. Consider it pure joy when you face trials because you have the opportunity to be a first fruit, an offering of praise and worship. What he's saying is that you and I have been set aside to worship God and give him praise, not because of what is in front of us, but because we know who is in control of everything. Those chickens I just told you about, the first time they laid an egg, right? It was like we raised them for like six months and we're like, all right, guys, ladies, I call them the ladies. All right, ladies, come on, we're waiting on you. And then finally, like seven and a half months, like a month and a half later, we get the first egg. And the first chicken egg is like this big. It's tiny. But I got it out of the, of the, the hen house and I ran into the house. We got an egg! Oh my goodness! And then we was like, what do we do with it? <laughs> like it's so small and tiny. It was really fragile. And so then it was like, I don't know, do we frame it? Do we like put, put like plaster of Paris around it and like use it as a trophy? Like we didn't know what to do with it. And so we just threw it away. <laughs> but now they lay eggs every single day because that's what they were designed to do. But that first fruit, that first egg was a source of joy. That's what you were created to do. And in a similar way, that's what we are created to do. If we claim to be followers of Jesus, you and I, we are planted, fed, we are grown, we are picked to be with the most powerful, the only all-powerful sovereign creator of the universe to worship his name in the midst of trial and temptation. Let me close with this thought. I believe James is saying, so you want to know how to withstand trials and temptation. Feed your new roots, not your old soil. You are a first fruit. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, you are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. 
Every trial and temptation can be met with one of two options. Number one, we do it God's way, the wise way that we find in the word of God and how to conduct ourselves, or we can do it the foolish way, the selfish way, the world's way, Satan's way. We can turn to God because, as James says, he does not change. His grace for you, his love for you, his desire for you, his plan for you, it does not change. No matter the week it's been, the year it's been, no matter if you feel like you're firing on all cylinders, or perhaps you're coming in this morning having fed a temptation you've been trying to kick. Perhaps there's a trial that's led you towards anger, bitterness towards God or another person. The goodness of God is one that never changes. It does not shift like the shadows. It is constant, it is present. His mercy, his goodness, his grace, his faith in you. You see, trusting God in the midst of trial and temptation purely means this, that we know and that we believe that he is doing something great within us. That if we trust his path, we trust his ways, we turn to his word in spirit and in truth, we will arrive at a stronger, a better, a more worshipful spot than we have ever been. So my question to you, my question to myself this morning is what in your life may you need to starve right now? Is there some of that old soil that you're bringing back to those new roots? Stop feeding it. There is a price tag to it and you will not like where it leads you. But at the same time, what do you need to feed? What is the goodness of God, his wisdom that leads you to that everlasting life? Would you stand with us as we continue to worship in spirit and truth. May we feed the goodness of God in our life.